The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Hey guys, you're not going to believe this. In trouble? Need help no mere mortal could provide? Call Resplendent Man. When disaster rages, when destruction surges, when annihilation crashes, when certain doom approaches, call Resplendent Man. Instant service, reasonable rates. It's Resplendent Man, strange visitor from the heart of Dixie. Call 1-900-01-RESCUE. He even charges for the call. First 15 seconds. How greedy can you get? <clears throat> do you mind? Yes, I do mind. I have tried to be patient. I have tried to be understanding. Get a grip here. Do I tell you what to do? No, I don't. I'd appreciate the same courtesy from you. You will take this to heart. You will memorize it. You will live it. The strong do not exploit the weak. The powerful do not attack the defenseless. And you do not use your x-ray vision to spy on women in a locker room. Oh, please. What planet are you from? Try to grasp this. It's not a really hard concept. You may not like what I do, but there's not really a blessed thing you can do about it. Ho! Today, where 519-661-3600 is always a number you can call to reach us while we're on the air. Or you can write us when we're not off the air, or even when we are, actually, at feedback at justrightmedia.org. Where you can also find uh, on that website, www.justrightmedia.org, a complete archive of our past um, broadcasts of every single Left, Right, and Center. Oh, left, right, and center, that's what I'm working on now. But just right. In fact, left, right, and center was what led us into a lot of our conversations that we're getting into this week. And welcome back again, Robert. Well, thanks, Bob. Glad to be back. Um, I loved your show last week. Thank you. A masterpiece. And, uh, well, a little bit of what we're talking about today kind of precipitated from that. And um, I'll be talking later in the show about a new term that they're trying to push on. It's called hard, hard-headed socialism. You ever heard of that? Oh, yes, from hard-headed idiots. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I think you've got that. That's an anti-concept, really, that we want to talk about. And you yourself, you're going to be talking about something to do with... Did I get that right? Peter Pan or something like that? Oh, I, it's just a title <laughs> I just pulled out of a hat. The Peter Pan Syndrome, Why Some Adults Just Never Want to Seem to Grow Up Socially. 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 And that sort of stems from... Uh, As opposed to individually, maybe, perhaps. Uh, well, yeah, I don't care how tall they are. <laughs> <laughs> they got hair on their chest or not. We're talking about social behavior here, and uh, I think it stems more from what you were talking about on your show last week, which, uh, to remind the listeners, it was uh, dealing with getting something for nothing. Yes. As a common syndrome, if you will, in society, a lot of people want something for nothing. And you use Leave it to Beaver as an example of that. It, it was, was perfect. It was an awesome uh, illustration, actually. And really what the whole thing is about is how that desire of getting something for nothing um, 
causes us to actually teach people, teach our kids to hate capitalism at childhood. Yes. You know, yeah. and, and so that we sort of condition them for how they should be thinking, quote, socially, as you're going to be getting into later on in their lives. Right. Well, if you just remember that uh, clip that uh, introduced the show today. Um, have some courtesy when somebody, yes. you know, you don't go on to tell people what to do. Nobody, no adult likes being told what to do. And the folks of that statement, I think, should be on the word mature. No mature adult likes being told what to do. Because there are indeed a good many adults who not only like being told what to do, but would prefer doing the telling as well. Now, as an infant in the, in the cradle, we're all helpless. We rely on our parents to feed us, keep us warm, clothe us, keep us from harm, and clean up after us. And there's a complete dependency in yeah, infancy. The, the good old days. <laughs> <laughs> the thing is that we can't remember our infants, uh, infancy is called uh, inf uh, it childhood amnesia, as they call it. Very few people, if, if any at all, can really recall anything uh, before the age of two. Uh, hmm. some, n some nothing before the age of five. And probably with good reason. Who'd want to remember some of the, you know, getting changed by your parents? Or I remember certain specific incidents very briefly, but not, a, not, not a whole feeling of what it was like to be that Same age or anything yeah. like that. But with that dependency, you know, we're totally, totally uh, with uh, looking to others to look after us. And we'd most assuredly die if we didn't have them. But our nature as an infant is completely different from our nature as a mature adult. Completely different. Over the course of years, we progress from complete dependency to complete autonomy. The steps are gradual but obvious. A child smiles when he learns how to complete a new task or when he discovers something new. He may even laugh out loud with unfettered joy. And we've all seen it in kids when they find, find discoveries. And this is man's true nature, I think, to feel joy at each stage of our maturation from dependency to independence. Now, any of us who have children know that, and we both do, Bob, uh, have children know that as soon as they are able to do anything with any degree of competence, for example, putting on a pair of pants, they prefer to do it alone without help. Even if the attempt is long and laborious, they'd push away the helping hand of their parent once they think they know how to do it themselves. Now, it's in our nature to want to understand our environment, to control it, and to make it uh, work for us, to feel secure in it, to make it predictable. And there is a sense of individual accomplishment at each success in our attempts to control and understand our surroundings, including the people in our surroundings, our parents, our siblings, friends, and strangers. We feel secure and safe when we're able to predict someone else's behavior. We get upset when things don't go our way we, or interfere with what we want to do or make us feel unsafe. And this is as it should be for an adult as well as a child. We achieve a sense of power over the world, which makes us feel good with ourselves. And this develops over years, the sense of power and control. But and I guess you test that power against the prediction and expectations you have and how close yes. you can realize them. Yes, when somebody acts differently than how you would predict, you feel um, a sense of insecurity. True. Walking down the street, you expect everybody to do, you know, to continue walking where they're walking, not uh, jump in front of you and do something strange. Same when you're driving a car. You have a lot of expectations and predictions when you're out there in, the, in society. But, you know, there comes a point early on in our development when we realize that while we're trying to manipulate and understanding our surrounding, everyone else is trying to do the same thing with their environment. 
we also begin to grasp that just as others are elements of our environment, we too are elements in their environment. And as such, others around us try to understand and even control us to make us more predictable in their world. Now, at an early age, we learn when it is appropriate to try and control others and when to resist their control. Now, as a toddler, we might throw a tantrum when we lose control of others, when we are told we can't have our toys when we want. We might cry loudly in protest when, when, when we're told to we can't stay up past our bedtime and a parent picks us up to put us to bed. And like, by the way, that's where the childhood amnesia comes in. Who wants to remember those things? <laughs> <laughs> and likewise, if we try and take control of someone else, a sibling or a friend, and are met with resistance, we quickly learn things like manners and ownership. We develop a sense of empathy and sympathy. We stop trying to take another child's toys because we know how it feels to have our toys taken from us. And if we don't like it, we realize that they won't as well. At around this time, one of the most frequent words a child utters is, mine. Mm -hmm. Quite the concept for it to grasp. Now, this is the development of a human child, and it can take several years for manners, empathy, and respect to become second nature so that by our late teens, we should be socially mature and confident in our independent nature. By the late teens, we should realize that to deal with others, we have to act with mutual respect, asking or trading for something we want and not taking or stealing, telling the truth rather than lying acting fairly and honestly with others so that they in turn will act fairly and honestly with you a social maturity we would live in an ideal society if all of us could mature in such a manner from complete social dependency as an infant to complete social maturity by our late teens or thereabouts but as <clears throat> we all know there are a significant number of us who don't mature until much later, if at all. And that's why I call it the Peter Pan syndrome of social maturity. They don't want to grow up. There are many adults who, like infants, whine and scream and throw tantrums when things don't go their way, just like a toddler, who lie rather than tell the truth, who steal rather than ask or trade fairly, who demand things of others they would not like demanded from them. We all know of many examples of such immature adults. We can think of teachers who delight in brutalizing and ridiculing children to gratify their own sense of power, or who use their position of control to indoctrinate their students into their own way of thinking. We've heard of police officers taking pleasure in hurting others, or politicians seeking power for power's sake, of religious leaders abusing their authority over children and adults of doctors with no bedside manner who self-aggrandize and become arrogant and drunk on their position of power over life and death. We know of employers who abuse their employees, knowing that they have a hold over them. Or a union member who abuses his relationship with his employer, knowing that he can get away with it. We know of, or have heard of, husbands and wives who abuse their spouses and children. We see demonstrations by physically mature but socially retarded students protesting and smashing and looting when they think that society doesn't give them everything they want for free. Retarded, by the way, Bob, I think is a perfectly good word that should come back into common usage to describe someone who is slow to mature. The word, after all, means just that, slow. And yet, 
it's now become offensive to call anybody retarded. Is it slow or is it a resistance? You know, I, 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 it's re to retard of, something is to slow it down. A lot of your examples are largely social, and I'm just thinking of even something like the horror that's going on at EMDC right now, Algon Middlesex Detention Center, mm -hmm. people controlling each other. Yes. And uh, there it's in its rawest, grossest form you can possibly imagine. And uh, we're seeing it every day, and that's still a big issue. And, and, and so I'm just curious about what you see. Well, I guess let, let's finish the argument here to, to hear your whole motivational background. Actually, yeah, the EMDC, Elgin Middlesex Detention mm -hmm. Center, and the riots and violence that goes down there is an ex excellent example. I don't know any mature adult who would find hitting another adult to be acceptable behavior. Mm -hmm. And apparently when you go down to the, uh, to the jail... Uh, chances are you're likely to be beat up within that, that first day. And note they call it a culture. Yes. So yeah. it's a whole mindset. Mm -hmm. It's not just, you know, it's, it's bigger than just sometimes just the individual. As right. Part of maturity is perhaps operating independently of the collective. <laughs> Being able to, you know, I don't know. Keep your sanity when all about you. Oh, there, you're like losing you can't theirs. imagine it. Let's take a little break, mm -hmm. and we're going to hear a couple examples of socially retarded adults <laughs> flaunting their power and control. <laughs> oh, yes. Uh, for those not familiar with these uh, clips, we're about to hear from the movie called Candy from 1968. Miss Christian. Miss Christian. Well, Miss Christian. We are waiting, Miss Christian. I'm sorry, I didn't hear the question. You what? I didn't hear the question. Oh, yes. I see. Yes, indeed. You didn't hear the question. Is that right? Yes, Daddy. What? Yes, Mr. Christian. All right. Now I think we're getting somewhere. Miss Christian, wait in the hall for me after class. Tomorrow's assignment will be to write an essay. On the subject of the citizen's responsibility to his government, his church, his school, his parents, his community, and his local police force. inside his head. With one tiny movement, I can wipe out 20 years of memories as easily as you can erase a blackboard. If I should hiccup, I would put a dent in the patient's speech center that would leave him not only incapable of pronouncing the letters L, R, D, Y, and F, but make him absolutely incapable of digit dialing. But that's not going to happen. Because I know just exactly. <laughs> and that was James Coburn pulling his finger out of the guy's brain to thunderous applause. <laughs> and that was actor John Aston we heard before. Yes, yeah, from. What was that name of that movie? The Adams Family. The Adams was, Family, yes. That was what he was known for. And, of course, other people that appeared in this terrible movie included Marlon Brando, um, 
Richard Burton? Richard Burton. Anybody yeah. else? Ringo Starr. Ringo Starr. Oh, my goodness. And it's just terrible, but it's a train wreck you want to watch. <laughs> it is. It's two hours long of psychedelic bizarreness, which is, it's, you only are able to watch it knowing that, is a, it, that it's a farce, a yeah. spoof. So. Be embarrassed about the 60s. Watch candy. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, those were sort of examples of uh, people who let power go to their head and weren't really socially mature. And there's so many examples of abuse of the power we give people. But, of course, for every immature adult, there are many more mature ones who wouldn't dream of telling another mature adult what he should or should not do. I personally find attempts by one adult to control or admonish another adult quite distasteful. Imagine how you might feel if you're sitting at a picnic table, for example, eating a hamburger, and an adult passes by, stops to tell you that you shouldn't be eating meat, and that eating meat is murder, and that you should eat vegetables instead. Now, any normal, mature adult would be completely aghast at such rude behavior, and yet we are accosted by such adults every day. Every single day, adults in high position of authority, such as doctors in control of local health authorities, here in London especially, or newspaper editors or talk show hosts calling for bans on one thing or another, and lobby groups using tax dollars to advertise their opinions and try to make our behavior conform to their view of how society should be. I have this to say to such people. If you wouldn't be so rude one-on-one, to another mature adult or another adult, I wouldn't call you mature, why do you believe that joining a group excuses such rude behavior? There's no end to the public admonishment of our behavior as mature adults by other less mature adults. We're told not to smoke cigarettes, not to smoke pot, not to drink alcohol, not to drink soft drinks in New York City. What we should be drinking, what to eat, what not to eat, how to act, what we can't say, what we can or cannot wear, the time of day that, or the day of the week when we should be opening and closing our businesses, what kind of pets we can't have, and even when we should be at home in bed rather than out socializing. In many respects, we are dealt with as if we were children every day of our lives. But not all levels of control and power by one adult over another are necessarily bad. We feel we freely grant power to many of the people we come in contact with. Freely. In private relationships, we often, we're often glad that a doctor has the knowledge he has, and we really trust his judgment when it comes to matters of that nature. That's why we pay him. That's right. If we don't particularly like to hear the bad news from our doctor, we're free to get a second opinion. We generally trust our teachers, although, to tell you the truth, Bob, of all the professions, I would say that this particular one is quickly losing all of its credibility. We have some degree of trust when uh, we give our care to our mechanic to fix. We generally trust our scientists, even though from time to time we know that they get it wrong, or we know some who might be fudging the data. In the public realm, we know that we need police officers to catch the bad guys, so we give them the power to do that. Those police officers who act with maturity do not abuse their power and realize that they must work within the law themselves and for us. We even know we need politicians to handle those affairs we would rather not handle ourselves, and some of them, I would say, act maturely. Most, unfortunately, do not. Now, with Constance's examples of adults acting as immature infants socially, the question arises, what is it that has stunted 
their social maturity? There's the question. What happened during that time when they took delight in trying to tie their shoes for the first time and the time when they took delight in smashing police cars during a riot? (laughs) The answer, I think, is actually simple. I don't think it's a, a psychological problem. I don't think it's a psychiatric problem as such. I think it's a philosophic one. As long as we're dealing with sane people here, immature perhaps, but sane people who have not nothing organically wrong with their cognitive abilities, the answer to explain their behavior, I think, is always philosophic. If you have developed into a socially mature adult, you owe it to having a philosophy which, at least to some significant degree, recognizes reality for what it is, understands that you're a rational person who has the ability to deal with reality, who trusts your senses and your judgment, who realizes that acting rationally is the only way to properly control your environment to benefit your long-term self-interest. You also realize that as a rational person, it makes sense for your own sake to act ethically towards others. Now, on the other hand, if you're socially immature, it means that you subscribe to a philosophy which rejects all or some of the elements of the socially mature man's philosophy. Perhaps you reject reality itself and see it as a temporary path of pain on the way to some afterlife. Perhaps you don't trust your judgment or your senses, thinking that the world is fickle and that fate will counter any judgment you make, and you live, therefore, as a defeatist, afraid to make any judgment at all. Perhaps you consider yourself as a flawed automaton with no ability to choose, flitting from one course of life to another, goalless and adrift in a world out of your control, willing to take the advice of anyone in a position of authority, and you'll find no end to the number of people willing to lead you there. The key point to remember is that those who have a sense of social maturity have, I think, an objective Aristotelian philosophy of the world and others in it. They see themselves as part of the world, with reality and truth as their standard for behavior. Now, those who are socially infantile, I think, have a subjective platonic philosophy. They live in a world either with themselves at the center, with their needs and wishes and whims as their standards for their behavior, or they see the needs and wishes and whims of others as their standard for behavior. They either seek instant hedonistic gratification wherever they can find it, often at the expense of others, or they seek to selflessly sacrifice themselves to others and likewise wish to sacrifice others for the good of the greater number. They've either not yet developed a sense of empathy towards others because they can only see themselves and their range of the moment needs, or they've not learned to see their own lives as a proper end in itself and likewise respect the same in others. So, Bob, the maturity of a rational self-interest or the immaturity of mysticism and altruism, it always comes down to those competing philosophies, and this this is what this show has been about since its inception, I think. Robert, as you were sitting there writing, I don't, or reading, I was sitting here scribbling away like crazy. You just gave me a theory that I want to test on you really quickly. Okay. And it's based on your premise that it's a philosophical issue more than anything else. And it struck me in your example of the child who learns to put on his pants. I, I've experienced that. I've seen that with kids, and they get so excited that they can accomplish something. Yes. And they can do it over and over again. The, the experience repeats. You know You know where else you'll see that? I've seen it in my grandson with uh, 
certain subjects in school, like mathematics, where where you know you got the answer right, you know what what the proper final function is. But the thing about kids is that being young and they can see putting the pants on, putting the sh- all that on, that's very concrete bound stuff. As we get a little older, as adults, we have to see a larger picture and that requires seeing more than what's just around our room, what's around our society and we have to learn to abstract. Mm-hmm. And that is part of the maturing process to learn how to properly abstract and to understand that abstractions just because they are an abstraction doesn't mean they don't exist classic example cash money <laughs> oh, <yes. laughs> it's just an abstraction and i don't think you'll see too many people turning down that abstraction if you hand them a pile of it right that's correct yeah. and so it's not just a piece of paper it represents something right the concreteness is the piece of paper the abstraction is the value that it holds for others and yourself and then Once you get into that field of abstractions, follow me through here, then you're dealing with what you say, left and right, Plato and Aristotle. And suddenly there are different ways of looking at life. And the person who is more independent-oriented might go towards the Aristotelian way, whereas the person who seeks more of that... um, I don't know whether is it paternal or maternal. I don't know which which is the correct for, uh, phrase to use when you're talking about a government looking after paternalistic. Paternalistic. Let's just keep it gender sure, free. Okay. <laughs> Wouldn't want to offend anybody. Well, um, but in any case, you know what I'm saying. And and then you have people who who become dependents as adults on the state, just as they were on their parents as children. Yes. And. Once that cycle is started in a in a given, say, welfare state system, it's very difficult to break because that mentality to doesn't wean. break. There's no yeah. abstraction to take them away from it. Um, and that requires a certain level of maturity. And, you know, I always feel a little handicapped trying to debate with people who are who are not abstracting, don't see the bigger picture. They're always brought back to the, the latest example. You know, and uh, that's why left, right, and center was foremost in my mind. Every time you answered a question, another example would be tossed out. You know, and because they couldn't, they couldn't grasp the abstraction. The, the principle, yes. the principle yeah. is gravity; it will drop. Oh yeah, well, what about the ball? Well, what about the pen? What if I drop a pen? What yeah. if I drop a ball? What if I drop a chair? <laughs> and, and it continues on and, and on and, and on. And it just never ends, as though they expect somewhere along the line there's going to be a major exception to the principle, right? <laughs> yeah. And that 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 to me is part of, uh, I don't know, does that make sense to you? What, what, uh, actually, perfect sense. And actually, when I when I first met you and uh, a lot of our friends who um, I, I think have a rational view of life, and an objective, objective uh, Aristotelian philosophy, when a principle was mentioned, boom, everything clicked, and you could see all the dominoes fall, and we didn't have to give countless examples of how this, was, how this mm-hmm. principle could apply. We knew that if you say a particular principle, that um, all the examples were unnecessary. In fact, it was very helpful. I mean, we're not all we're not always conscious of these things, and we all make mistakes even according to our own standards. Oh, sure. And that's why it's good to have some friends around you who are based on the same principles, and they'll ask you, well, doesn't that contradict X that you've been saying all this time? And you go, and, oh, and an honest person would, w- would, would admit it. And that's basically what determines that relationship. That's right. Yeah. While a dishonest or immature person would deny the contradiction and continue to act um, Contrary to his uh, to his mm-hmm. beliefs and to reality and truth, and, and I just wish that the world would grow up and wean themselves off of the dependency of 
um, other adults, uh, whether that be one-on-one or through groups like governments and unions. I'm not entirely convinced um, that it's the world as such. I think our political leaders are are largely, largely responsible. Our our leadership that that sucks us into this something-for-nothing idea. I'm going to disagree with you. Uh, because, Because we go along with it, I think a lot of people innocently... I think you have to. Th- you gave a good example earlier. You talked about you know certain behavior you wouldn't expect. You know somebody coming up to you and telling you what to eat mm-hmm. at, at a picnic table. Well, it's the same thing. I always, but that's what they tell you what not to do. What about when they tell you what to do? And I've always said, you know, an, um, a way you can tell good government is 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 the government gets its authority from the consent of the people. Government essentially doesn't have any quote unquote rights that the people who comprise it do not. Therefore, if it's something you as an individual cannot socially acceptably do, your government shouldn't be able to. Now, as as hard-hearted as it sounds, which will be getting into hard-headed socialism soon, um, that would mean that, you know, you might have a sick friend in the house, you might have a sick friend down the street, but but would you be feeling good if you picked up a gun, went down to your neighbor's place and said, hey, cough over a hundred bucks, we've got to pay for Joe's health care down the street? noble cause but is the means a noble means and people always confuse ends and means i think though when, I, mean, I perfectly i perfectly agree with you by mm-hmm. the way but i think that the the problem is not our politicians it is our uh, philosophers it is our teachers it is the people in universities where all of these ideas of dependency come from that's the root well, then you can blame the media. <laughs> well, no, they're just the spokespeople. Oh, okay. I think it's actually the people in the ivory tower in the university, like the university we're sitting here right now, who are <laughs> sitting at their desks dreaming up new ways that people should be dependent on other people. And um, it's our acceptance of these uh, immature ideas that is the problem. And, and the politicians are simply a syndrome, or a, a rather a symptom of that. Hmm. Anyway, we're going to take a little break. horse. Hmm. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) We're going to take a little break here and and, and hear a little bit more um, from the movie Candy and a a doctor who's just letting his power go to his head. (laughs) We'll be back right after this. This hospital is filled with very sick people. What did you say? (gasps) I just said... Never mind, I heard it the first time. You said sick. All I meant was... I don't give a damn what you meant. These people have feelings just like everybody else in the world. And they don't have to be subjected to any of your superior airs. All I want to do is find Dr. Crankite. Oh, what for? I want to ask him something. I'll just bet you do. Well, listen to me, little Miss Bright Eyes. I'm Dr. Crankite's personal nurse. Personal! Well, look. This is Crankite. I want you now. Come! He wants me. Daddy. Don't touch him. The doctor says no touching. You mustn't forget that our hands are playgrounds for germs, microbes, spirochetes, and who knows what other kinds of contamination. Hmm? I just wanted him to know that I was here. He knows you're here. How can you tell? How can I tell? She asked how I can tell. <laughs> Put those flowers in the icebox. He can tell because he's a doctor. Dig. Then you think he's going to be all right? Well, let's put it this way. Your father will live. Oh, thank goodness. The question is, for how long? Oh, you mean he might... I don't mean anything. You must remember, 
that scientifically speaking, the only difference between life and death is that death lasts a lot longer. new regulations and seldom cancel old ones. That would be so complicated that only bureaucrats, lawyers, and lobbyists could understand them. That way small businesses with big ideas wouldn't stand a chance. And I would never have to worry about another Thomas Edison, Henry Ford, or Steve Jobs. I would ridicule as flat earthers those who urge them to lower energy costs by increasing supply. And when the evangelists of common sense try to remind people about the laws of supply and demand, I'd enlist the sympathetic media to drown them out. <laughs> if I wanted America to fail, my name might be Jonathan Kay. Because <laughs> in that case, you can uh, brag about Canada being so great. You know, everywhere you look, the news stories of our time have been painting a bleak future, economically, politically, and socially. It's not like the times it used to be, even a decade or two ago. Yet, on the other hand, we can look at the sciences and technology and see all kinds of development on that side of the picture, and the future always seems to be, you know, to look bright, economic considerations aside. Like from the discovery of the God particle to private enterprise now going into space, the news is exciting. But I think more and more of, of the general public is like feeling cut out of the celebrations and can't seem to envisage the potential that all of this should engender. You know, like it used to be up until the 1950s or so. I remember people were excited about every new technological innovation invention because they knew soon they would share some something of it, and they understood that. And But things suddenly slowed down in the 60s, of course. But, of course, there's a big difference between what's going on in science and tech and what's going on in politics and economics. And why is there such a glaring difference? Because I think in the latter disciplines, uh, science, tech, and math, rationality and logic rule. There's no room for the unreal. In the former, economics, politics, and the humanities, irrationality is as often the rule as rationality. And unreality is practically the unifying principle upon which... All these modernism ideas are based, I think. Reading a headline, Bernanke's Outlook Grim, reads the July 18 London Free Press. Uh, from Washington, Federal Reserve Chairman Ben Bernanke on Tuesday offered a gloomy view of the economy's prospects, but provided few concrete clues on whether the U.S. Central Bank was moving to closer to a fresh round of monetary stimulus. Bernanke told the Senate Banking Committee the economic recovery was being held back by anxiety over Europe's debt crisis and the path of U.S. fiscal policy as he expressed unease over a stagnant jobs market. You know, everyone seems to be expecting and welcoming a renewed eventual round of stimulus by the central banks, meaning more of the same poison that's been keeping the economy down in the first place. You end up with good money chasing after bad because the government refuses to allow the marketplace to sever that forced connection between the two. We're in a state now, I think, Robert, where capital itself needs to be freed from this cycle of stimulus and government expropriation. It really needs to be freed to allow for the creation of the next industrial revolution, which I think we're on the precipice of and might have already started had we not been so retarded by our <laughs> economic system, such as it's evolved into. Um, you know, 
it's just amazing what has happened. I think what we're facing now could be as dramatic as, as the last industrial revolution. But again, we see headlines like Microsoft posts a loss in the free press July 20th headline. By the way, that's the first time that company has ever posted any kind of loss ever since it went public. And uh, now it said it took this loss because of a $6.2 billion write-down for the value of its online unit after an ill-fated acquisition. So, uh, interesting, they haven't suffered a quarterly loss since going public in 1986. I remember dating a lot, or, or debating a lot of people on left, right, and center who denied at any point that anything could ever happen to Microsoft. They're, they're eternal, you know? And we have to recall, even the yeah, biggest... Yeah, like GM. Yeah, the biggest companies are going to end up no longer existing. So, we shouldn't be handicapping them with all these eternal burdens that bring them down. Now, they're calling it hard-headed socialism, and it is yet another anti-concept created, I think, to destroy our ability to think about the something-for-nothing issue properly and to be able to make the necessary distinctions to arrive at a proper moral judgment on the issue. Is statism light, the wave of the future, asks the front-page headline in the ideas section of the National Post on July 19. Ostensibly presented as a debate on the question, Robert, Jonathan Kay's column appropriately was placed on the left side of the page and was headed, The Triumph of Hard-Headed Socialism. I think you're looking at it right there. Mm -hmm. While Andrew Coyne's column, sitting sitting on the right-hand side of the page, merely denied Kay's reference sources and then argued economics. And a lot of it was kind of lefty to me. Well, that's the problem with the right, is they never have the moral arguments. Uh, They may have economic arguments. That's, That's part of the problem. And, you know, he he concluded with no alternative other than to say, while it's fine to combine both a productive economy with a decent safety net, we have a lot of work to do on both. Well, that's kind of a meaningless conclusion. So, Jonathan Kay's anti-capitalist diatribe wins, and that's kind of pathetic, too. So, what's all the fuss about? It's about a new term invented by Canadian writer and novelist Stephen Marsh, who authored a Bloomberg News column earlier this month headed... Hard-headed socialism makes Canada richer than U.S., end quote. The column was picked up by Time magazine and has now become another anti-concept used to promote the mixed economy. You know, hard-headed, I think, is probably means capitalism and, and uh, socialism. Well, that means something for nothing. Now, statists, con artists, and other denizens of the cult of plunder, like I like to see them as, are all now lining up to stake claim to this term. And its implications as their latest word weapon against the good, against the moral and the right, which, of course, is always capitalism. At the front of the line is, is National Post columnist Jonathan Kay. And this is what he wrote in his 19, uh, July 19 defense of hard-headed socialism. He says, here in Canada, the 2008 financial crisis has created a massive upheaval in conservative politics. That's interesting. That's where the upheaval is, is in conservative Conservative politics. (laughs) Before that, the real dynamo behind right-wing ideology in this country was the prosperous laissez-faire capitalism of the United States. What happened in 2008 shows us that we were worshipping a false god. Prosperous laissez-faire capitalism in the United States? Which in the United States is that? He must be dreaming about them somewhere. The United States of 1810, perhaps. (laughs) As for all that soaring productivity growth in the United States, much of it was statistical, a statistical mirage produced by inflated home prices and massive Wall Street profits. Currently, the average Canadian household is more than $40,000 richer than the average American household, reports the Globe and Mail, citing recent Environics uh, Analytics Wealthscapes data. 
These numbers should be a source of great pride for Canadians, says Kay. And I'm thinking, boy, that's about as strange a viewpoint as you can have. That's economic relativism at its best. Goes right along with the moral relativism, you see. Mm. And this is him writing again. If Canada was, relatively speaking, on the right track policy-wise all along, does the idea of being a Canadian fiscal conservative even make sense anymore? Yes, a lot of our wealth comes from oil and other natural resources. But unlike the United States, we've plowed much of the proceeds back into public spending while avoiding Bush-style budget-busting tax breaks for the rich. Nor did we let free market euphoria permit the creation of a subprime ninja mortgage market. That was free market euphoria, can you imagine? Mm. No, it was a free euphoria, not a free market euphoria. The market was actually made unfree by being loosened up and, and unrestricted. No, that's what makes it free. He says, the United States isn't the only developed nation grow, uh, drowning in red ink, of course. Much of socialist Europe is doing even worse. Italy and Greece both have debt levels that exceed GDP, and other larger European nations are, are heading in that direction. But the lesson from this, and here, here's his lesson, the lesson from this isn't that big government is an economy killer. Norway and Sweden both have roaring economies, despite being socialist welfare states with high rates of government spending. Rather, the lesson is that nations must spend within their means, something Canada has done for the most part, but the United States hasn't. Is there a name for a policy that combines fiscal responsibility with a thick safety net, including universal health care? You can call this third-way politics, or you can call it statism light, or you can call it, as Marsh does, hard-headed socialism, a term I really like, he says. But the fact is, it's, it's what works, end quote. Can you believe that? Actually, from a conservative, yes, I can, because as we've said on the show before, conservatives are socialists. Well, they're pragmatists, too. They go by, uh, by what works, and that's not thinking too far ahead. You, you know, the question is, works at what? Well, he says fiscal responsibility. In other words, governments should tax more so that they don't get into debt. Because right? he's not saying to spend less. He says we should continue spending on u- universal health care. And he says, and a thick, expensive and wasteful, that's what the, I read thick as, safety net. Now, that means government, state, social programs, and economic controls, including universal health care. Now, that's an interesting safety net because that's one that everybody is in, and nobody's holding it up. It's a, it's a universal plan, so there's nobody holding it up. It's not like you're trans... It, you know, we're all in, 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 the, in the thing together. This is a formula for the collapse of civilization itself. How does this third way work with respect to individual freedom, the right to free trade? What about life, liberty, property? How does this third way work with respect to them? Kay's objectives, arguments, and reasoning are, are so shallow that basically they all amount to, you know, this schadenfreude, you know, that, that phrase, a delight in the lesser for- fortunes of others, and using that delight both as a source of pride and a sense of superiority, which demonstrate the shallowness of the standards being applied. So I dedicate this next item to Mr. K so that he too might discover that his pride in Canada's statistical blip is just as dumb as many of the Americans he derides in his anti-capitalist rant. Got this from the July 2000 issue of Maxim magazine, of all things, Robert, in an article called 50 Reasons We're Proud to Be American. And reason number three was the one that I thought was interesting. I might have mentioned this on, on the show many years ago before. And it was headed, we're number one, damn it, or no one is. 
And it says, we have a tendency to take international competition pretty seriously. Listen to this. Yale students were asked in 1990 which they would prefer. America with 1% economic growth and Japan with 1.5% growth. Or America suffering a 1% drop and Japan falling by 1.5%. Even though it meant economic decline, they chose the latter. That bizarre what? They'd rather suffer a loss as long as the other guy goes down a little more than they do. And that's part of that mentality, you know, even what you were talking about earlier. So, you know, it's not, so that's not, yeah, not to a hard-headed socialist. I think that's a knuckle-headed socialist. Dangerous to our well-being. Jonathan Kay, give that hard-headed yours a shake. We'll be back again right after this. If I wanted America to fail, I would never teach children that the free market is the only force in human history to uplift the poor, establish the middle class, and create lasting prosperity. Instead, I demonize prosperity itself so that they will not miss what they will never have. Moreover, this is not a stationary thing. Every control requires further controls. It produces certain dislocations which necessitate still further controls. You can check that by looking at history. Every single decade, it doesn't make any difference what party is in office, is, is in office has more and more controls to try to cover the consequences of the preceding controls. And there's only one end of that road as there was in Weimar, Germany, and that is total control. This is the end result of the welfare state, which is only a transition point in history. Well, interesting comments. Speaks to your point, too, about control as well, Robert. It was Leonard Peacock. Yes. Uh, you know, at least Terence Corcoran at the National Post understood the epistemology of this hard-headed socialist anti-concept. In his editorial, Not Wealthy Enough to Gloat, on July 18, he cites Canadian writer Stephen Marsh's conclusion that social programs and robust capitalism are not, as so many would have you believe, inherently opposed propositions. Both are required for national prosperity. And thus is born a definition of something called hard-headed socialism. The reason some economic data might be moving in Canada's favor is not a function of Canadian socialism winning out over American capitalism, he writes. To the extent that the United States is losing economic ground, it's a direct result of America's slide into forms of socialism. And Canada's growing uh, base is a more capitalistic nation. American socialism is a threat to U.S. economic growth, a threat that is keeping the economy down, especially in the past five years under President Barack Obama and the current Congress. American socialist housing policies, which provided massive incentives for home ownership through scores of government programs and institutions, produced the housing crisis that is at the heart of U.S. economic problems. As the U.S. slides under the Obama administration's demonstrably leftist and anti-capitalist direction, Canadian statistics may begin to look a little healthier, at least by some measures. Even more telling on the socialism-capitalism meter is another Environics Analytics number. Annual disposable income for a Canadian household last year, 58839 For an American household, 
98,467. That's from the same poll. In the end, the, the big gap may not even exist. No story here, ideological or otherwise, he concludes. Now, except for his conclusion uh, that there's no story here, I agree with the rest of his analysis. And I suppose that there's no story to the statistics themselves. I think the real story here is the folks who want something for nothing and who are willing to twist, evade, and, and you know, create a story with this false debate. That's what, that's what the real story is all about. Uh, the Jonathan Case, you know, did anyone could think it's not only morally acceptable, but possible to balance consent and compulsion is kind of strange to begin with. It's, uh, it, to suggest that both can co coexist, again, is not maturing. It's like you were saying earlier, you're not recognizing reality. Each is an opposite condition of the other. Both conditions cannot coexist in the same time and space. And this brings us back to the message you were talking about, the protesters. London Free Press. Quebec student protesters bring message to London. This was in July 18. And this is certainly in the explicitly something for nothing category that we discussed last week. They were asked this question among others, but here was the question that caught my attention. How would you propose we change to a model with free education? Remember, that's what they're supposedly on striking against or protesting about. And they respond, their spokesman responded, quote, the government said, we don't have the money, we don't have the money, we don't have the money. They created that crisis by ideological choice. Yes, there was a crisis, but not because there was a problem with the social programs. The corporations, mainly, are paying less tax. Also, the tax brackets should be changed so that those who are richer pay more. We have to have a much bigger conversation than just funding for education. <laughs> End quote. I guess that says it all, eh, Robert? No, here's our conversation right here. Yeah. You're an immature child, <laughs> wanting something for nothing and willing to control people to get your way. And, Robert, you're totally correct. It is an ideological, philosophical conflict. The students who have made their ideological viewpoint glaringly obvious have expressed a purely evil ideology, the, the very ideology that actually created the financing crisis in which they find themselves. If anyone does not understand why this is so, then, you know, go out there and find yourself a pyramid scheme to buy into, or maybe just get a credit card, crank it up to an unaffordable limit immediately on the first day, and uh, then cope with the payments later, and then you'll understand the situation that governments are in almost all around the world. Except there's one major difference between my example and what the students are actually demanding. In my example of the credit card, to <clears throat> To make it parallel with the student's ideology, I would have to add, then after cranking your credit card to the limit, pay both your debt and your ongoing spending by charging it to your next-door neighbor. <laughs> That's what they want. The student gets something for nothing, the neighbor gets nothing for something, right? And that's how the economic equation has to balance itself. It can't do otherwise. And as to the protesters themselves, there's a great quote of Ronald Reagan's uh, that was sent to me recently. Um, I think John Thompson just sent it to me from the McKenzie Institute. Quote, a protest march is like a tantrum, only better organized. <laughs> <laughs> now, I can, I can think of no better description of what we're seeing in Quebec and of what we can expect from some, the something-for-nothing ideologues in the future. They're all busily working on the biggest tantrum that they can possibly organize. Isn't that what it's all about? And uh, to which I can say, you know, I'll respond, wah. <laughs> right? I think these are the baby boomerangers that the baby boom generation 
spawned and left behind. And just as their protest march is an organized tantrum, so, so too socialism is merely organized theft and plunder. Remember, that's what Frederick Bastiat called it and others. That that's what socialism is. And of course, there's a bigger question here. How do you objectively measure a society's value to the individuals who live in it? Polls, studies, and surveys all provide raw statistics, but all current standards are relative, while at the same time there's an entrenched resistance to establishing what you might call objective standards with regard to governance, social welfare, poverty, economics, wealth, freedom, all those things. Ayn Rand wrote uh, many years ago in 1964, she wrote, I guess she said it, when I came to the United States from Soviet Russia, I was interested in politics for only one reason, to reach the day when I would not have to be interested in politics. I wanted to secure a society in which I would be free to pursue my own concerns and goals, knowing that the government would not interfere to wreck them, knowing that my life, my work, my future were not at the mercy of a dictator or state's whim. Only today I know such a society is an ideal not yet achieved, that I cannot expect others to achieve it for me, that's a sign of maturity, and that I, like every other responsible citizen, must do everything to achieve it. In other words, I'm interested in politics only in, only in order to secure and protect freedom, end quote. And that was out of the 1964 March Playboy interview that Ayn Rand did with Alvin Toffler back then. Now, under the hard-headed socialism approach, which, remember, is what we sort of have now, no one will ever have the security of knowing that their own government won't wreck their work or threaten their future. And I think Rand overreached a bit in her ide- uh, you know, idealism about being able not to have to worry about politics. I've learned, and I think you've learned that too, Robert, that there will never be such a time as a day when we don't have to be interested in politics, for the very reasons you were talking about early on. Freedom is a rational concept and needs to be taught to each successive generation that is born tabula rasa with regard to any such knowledge. And evil, that is, the tendency to desire and demand something for nothing, will always be with us. That's why we have things like religion, the Bible, all of those symbolic um, stories told to represent this thing that has existed among us since the beginning of our recorded history. And those who choose the political path to this end want a society that provides them with security from the necessity of, of self-responsibility. In contrast, the task of, quote, securing a society, which is the way Rand worded it, that is free and civilized is also a task requiring eternal vigilance. And, you know, a free society, I think, is as secure a success society as is possible. Wouldn't you agree? Oh, totally, yes. So, a society that provides security, on the other hand, is an unfree and unsecure society. Politically and economically, we're seeing it now. You just have to look at history. Just look at Europe. Just look at our budgets of all our governments right now. Look at what we're expecting in the future. And, and also, psychologically, it's in, it's, there's an insecurity, not an unsecurity, which accounts for the emphasis on the I'm making more money than you childish concept of comparative economic advantage, right? And of using that temporary and meaningless economic comparison as evidence of some sort of other superiority. Let's not forget what um, Ronald Reagan reminded us of many times. A government big enough to give us everything we want is also big enough to take from us everything we have. And they do eventually. And what all socialists, I guess, or people who think you can distribute wealth this way and share it, um, 
seem not to appreciate is that the so-called middle road between socialism and capitalism, hard-headed socialism, that's merely a temporary location along the left road to totalitarianism, which we just, we just heard from Leonard Peikoff. Hard-headed so- socialism is, is as much an anti-concept as its negatively expressed counterpart might be. And I was wondering, why, why didn't they use this other phrase, soft-hearted capitalism? Hard-headed socialism, soft-hearted capitalism, which I could easily have used to promote capitalism on emotional and non-essential grounds. But of course, there ain't no such thing. Adjectives are unnecessary. There's socialism and there's capitalism. (laughs) Two diametrically opposed concepts that do correspond to reality, both in theory and practice. So to combine the two is to obliterate both concepts, just like mixing matter and antimatter and expecting a hard-headed alternative of some sort. By the way, I think the reason that the phrase hard-headed socialist was used, as opposed to soft-hearted capitalist, is because capitalism has nothing to gain from being soft-hearted or more socialist, while socialism has everything to gain from being capitalistically hard-headed, which Jonathan Kay sees as a ticket to fiscal conservatism and balanced budgets, right? We have to have that discipline, that's the hard head. But it's not metaphysically possible to balance a budget on this grounds, nor the power of a state committed to the values expressed by Kay in this hard-headed socialist philosophy. Uh, Fiscal responsibility under an infinite demand for so-called universal spending? All this and freedom, too? (laughs) Oh, but no, wait, there was no mention of freedom as a value at all. Or justice, nor the military, nor anything about life, liberty, and property in this whole hard-headed socialist blueprint. I didn't see any mention of it, did you? No, of course not. And, uh, you know, like all conservative plans, the blueprint is really a red print. (laughs) (laughs) Their ideology goes beyond the reality that some things are black and white. Their ideology suggests that some things are black and white at the same time. (laughs) A good-bad, a right-wrong, an up-down, an inside-out, a left-right, a capitalist-socialist or hard-headed socialist, right? (laughs) To be able to do this is to deny the validity of epistemology, specifically definitions and contexts, and to say that words don't mean anything, or worse, that they can mean whatever you want them to mean. And this is their their expression of that rejection of reality as such, and a rejection of the connection of their pragmatism to the unsustainable government debts that always result. Why do things always end up this way in politics? I'll tell you, Robert, it's because it works. It works at getting something for nothing. Pragmatism, which I have learned to redefine as the ideological rejection of ideology. (laughs) That's what it is. (laughs) I like that, yeah. You know, slavery comes in many shapes and forms. Hard-headed socialism is simply one among thousands. So while the hard-headed socialists would like to make all of us slaves to their ideology... I think the thing Robert and I are really slaves to right now is time, right, Robert? Yes, unfortunately. And the clock says that we must obey by interrupting our journey in the right direction until next week. Until then, you know what to do. Be right, act right, stay right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the clothes, everything will be all right. Child psychology hint number 15. The precocious child. If your child is constantly arguing with you, try the last Fogel method. First appeal to his high intelligence, using logic in a firm eye-to-eye confrontation. Relying on the child-parent relationship in giving and taking in a reasonable way. If this doesn't work, 
use the Wasserman method. Break a chair over his head. 